So, um, you know, it is always a, a challenge to find something to talk about. And yesterday I received an email from my friend Mindy at Peninsula High School in Palos Verdes. And she invited me a few weeks ago to come to her class and give a presentation on Buddhism. And I said, because of the coronavirus, I'd rather not go to your class. But if you could send me some questions from the students, I would be happy to answer them. So yesterday, the email came through with two pages of questions. So I thought that would be a good place to start uh, my talk. Uh, some of the questions from Peninsula High School. Now, ultimately, or eventually, I'd like to turn this into a podcast and maybe make it uh, uh, a YouTube video as well. So we'll see how that goes. I do have a little extra time these days. So, this is, these are the students. Now, the students uh, wrote these questions down, gave them to Mindy, the teacher, Mindy emailed them to me, and the first question is, have you gotten close to achieving nirvana? And if so, did you stop and go back to help others get close? Thanks. Well, you know, that's really a great question, and, and not the, the question of, did I get close to nirvana? Because that should be apparent to everybody that I've got a long ways to go. But did you stop and go back? And that's one of the major differences between Theravada and Mahayana. In Theravada, if you get close to nirvana, you don't stop. You go all the way. You've worked many lifetimes to get to that place. And you don't want to hesitate and, and, and put it off any longer. But in the Mahayana tradition... It's a little different because we have something called the bodhisattva ideal. And the idea behind that is to help all sentient beings end their suffering before you accept your release from suffering, which is nirvana. So I've always thought of Mahayana as going towards enlightenment and Theravada going towards nirvana. So nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive. It's the end of your karma, which is an amazing event, because it's your karma that migrates lifetime to lifetime. So if you end your karma, you have no future rebirths to look forward to, which translates into no more suffering to look forward to. But if you're following the Mahayana path, the idea is to become enlightened. Now, there are a variety of definitions for enlightenment. The one I like the best is having had the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. You now realize that your suffering is the suffering of others and your happiness is the happiness of others. So you work diligently to end the suffering of others before you accept the end of your own suffering. Major difference between Mahayana and Theravada. But ultimately, in both Theravada and Mahayana, you achieve nirvana. That is the end goal. 
Now, some of us maybe want to go to heaven. Because heaven sounds like a great place to relax a little bit before the next lifetime. And Buddhism has heavens, and Buddhism has hells. So our afterlife is, is profound and, and filled with many options. And it all comes out of our practice of Buddhism. Question number two. How did you choose to teach meditation to kids in jail? Years ago, I was invited by Mr. Noy Russell at Central Juvenile Hall, Eastlake Division, to come and talk to the kids about Buddhism. Because uh, Noy realized that Buddhism was about suffering and the end of suffering, and he felt if I could go down and speak to the kids, they might suffer a little less. So I made an appointment to give my first presentation in the High Risk Offenders Unit. And I was a little uh, skeptical at first. Would they get what I'm talking about? Would they appreciate me being there? Would the staff appreciate me being there? Uh, but I pushed all that aside and went to Central Juvenile Hall and gave my first talk. Now, as I'm fond of saying, when I walked into the unit, I felt immediately comfortable because we all had the same haircut. And then I asked everyone, is anybody suffering here? Is anybody suffering? Please raise your hand. And all the hands went up. So I said to myself, I guess this is the place. This is where I'm supposed to be. Because they're going to hear what I'm talking about. A lot of times, if life is a bit too good, uh, it falls on deaf ears. But at Central Juvenile Hall, it's a perfect environment to talk about why we suffer as a human, and more importantly, how to end that suffering as a human. And as I talked about meditation and relaxing into the present moment and getting rid of past and future and coming to that experience of your life right here, right now, I realized that that would lead everybody who meditated to a place of relaxation and calm if only for a few minutes or even a few moments, that would give them a chance to see that it is possible, even in the confines of Central Juvenile Hall, to be relaxed, to be calm, to be peaceful. Question number three. How much of your day does your religion take up? <laughs> well... Once you get ordained, your religion takes up 24 hours of your day because everything you're doing and everything you're thinking sort of relates to the reference point of being ordained as a monk or a Dharma teacher or simply a layperson practicing Buddhism. So uh, 24-7, that's how much time I devote to my religion. But the religion turns out to be simply the way you live your life, you see. It's become a lifestyle. And, and in that lifestyle, everything is determined by the five precepts. I'll practice not to take life. I'll practice not to take what is not given. I'll practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I'll practice not to speak unskillfully. I'll practice not to consume intoxicants. So, so those five guidelines are there 24-7. 
And that's what you're using as your reference point to be skillful. Now, being skillful means that you're reducing your suffering rather than increasing your suffering. So words of warning to anyone who picks a religious path, it tends to take over your life. Next question. Where do you find the peace to meditate? And what are the things you think about or do to bring about that sense of peace and balance? Well, the meditation center is located in Koreatown, downtown Los Angeles. There is no peace. Right now, as I'm looking out my window, I can't hear any sirens. I can't hear any helicopters. I can't hear any motorcycles without their mufflers on. I can't hear the big trash trucks picking up the trash. So right now, there's peace. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, it all goes to hell. So there is really no good time to find peace at the International Meditation Center. What you need to do is make the peace yourself. You need to go inside. You you can't rely on outside as the environment for peace. The peace resides inside. So even if there are helicopters and sirens, sitting in meditation, you can allow yourself to simply relax into the experience of the sound or the smell or the taste or the touch or the thinking that really never stops. And I've often thought, even if I was secluded in, in a national park, in a small cabin, by a stream running by, I'd still not find any peace. We'd have the bears and the mountain lions and the birds and the raccoons and the squirrels, just a different kind of irritation. So we need to meditate wherever we are. And that's one of the aspects of mindfulness meditation. You can meditate all day, every day. You don't need to be in a special place. The advantage of being in a special place, like IBMC and our Zendo, is you have like-minded people with you, encouraging you to find the peace inside. And that's a big help. You're less likely to get up and simply go turn on the TV if you're sitting with a bunch of other people who are meditating. Next question. What made you enjoy Buddhism more than Christianity? Do you still think that the religions are on the same level? Or do you believe that Buddhism is superior? Well, when I was a young lad, back in the 60s, my folks used to take me to church. And to be honest with you, I couldn't understand what the hell they were talking about. Because there was like, you know, the New Testament, the King James Version. It was really weird English. It was all sort of, you know, metaphoric and stories and, and, and not a clue. Not a clue. So I, I realized at some point that uh, Christianity wasn't for me. So I became an agnostic. I became someone who didn't want to commit themselves to any particular religious view. And I felt that there was freedom in that. And it was also pretty cool to call yourself an agnostic. Now, as I got older, I realized that that probably wouldn't work 
the rest of my life, that I really needed to attach myself to something that would give me peace, give me insight into the true nature of my life. And I just happened to find out about a gym and joined a gym at the age of 28 and started working out. And then I found out about meditation. So I started working with the body first. And then I said to myself, you know, I got this brain attached to my body that's not really doing anything at all. Maybe I should find out about meditation, and meditation then would help me. So I read a book or two about meditation, and then I found Buddhism. I found a book called the Dhammapada, which are verses that the Buddha, one of the most ancient texts of early Buddhism, uh, all attributed to uh, sayings and, and, and speeches of the Buddha. So I read that, and from page one, it made sense. It wasn't the King James Bible. It was how to live your life. It was what it meant to be a human being. It was what it meant to suffer, and more importantly, it, what it meant to end your suffering. So between the gym and meditation, uh, Buddhism started to become a very important part of my life. Now, I've been a member of various interfaith groups, uh, Garden Grove, Westminster, Stanter, in, Stanton, Interfaith Group, uh, Mid Wilshire Interfaith Group, Buddhist Catholic Dialogue. So I've come to the conclusion that, that Buddhism isn't any better than Christianity. It's just a different path with a different end result. And, and I, if I meet a Christian, I, I don't want to talk him into being a Buddhist. I want to talk him into... Well, maybe not even talk them into, but I want to encourage them to use their path as deeply as they can to come to whatever end result they're hoping for. And when I meet a Buddhist, you would think that we would all have something in common. But as it turns out, we really don't have that much in common, except we have the same father. But we all have different mothers. So you've got the Theravada, you've got the Mahayana, you've got the Vajrayana. And when, within each of those categories a multitude of ways of looking at it and practicing. So it's really funny. So what is the best religion in the world? It's, it's the one you're practicing. And, 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 and as a Buddhist, when a Buddhist says to me, what's the best religion? I say Buddhism. Next question. I think Ashanti liked that one. I'm looking at his face there. Okay, here we go. Uh, what is a normal day like for a Buddhist monk? Are there certain times of the day set for meditation? Uh, when I went to visit Shasta Abbey up in Northern California for a retreat and conference, they have certain times of the day set aside for meditation, for work, for study, for eating. Now, think of IBMC as being a city parish. And, and our schedule is pretty open. Not too many things are, are scheduled to happen every day at the same time. Though I must say, my duty of feeding the cats always happens twice a day. Because every time I walk out the back door, the cats are looking at me saying, where's my food? So I have that as part of my practice every morning. The first thing I do is I post on Facebook. Now, that may sound rather odd for a monk to look at posting on Facebook as an important uh, activity, 
but I have a, uh, quite a few people following and quite a few friends, and so I, I want to uplift their day, give them something to think about, maybe share just a, uh, a bit of wisdom or a bit of humor so they can enjoy the day a little bit more and maybe find something out that they didn't think about or realize before. And then it's off to the cats, and that takes usually an hour, hour and a half, because each one likes to get petted besides being fed, and then changing the water. And then I put more water in the koi pond. I fill the bird feeder. So I have that sort of as a practice, too, you know, encouraging life. And, and uh, let's see, Facebook posts are deeply, ah, thank you, Lisa English. And, and so, so I've got that. Then people keep sending me books. Kusli, you got to read this. This is fantastic. It'll make your day in life so much better. I'm going, okay. And then, and then they suggest maybe uh, documentaries on, uh, on Amazon Prime or uh, on PBS. Kusla, you got to do this too. I just got an invitation to uh, do a book review of a book. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that means I got to read 350 pages and actually say something about them. And then I got my list yesterday from the, from the high school saying, hey, these are the questions we'd love you to answer. There's only 45 of them. Come on. So I'm thinking, okay, that's a good solid week's worth of work and thinking and speaking. And, and then maybe I'll have breakfast. Maybe I need to eat just a little bit something to keep the energy up and keep me going. And I got to take my vitamins because I got to be able to, to relate to the world in a healthy, compassionate way. So every day at IBMC is the first day. We, it's, not, it's never the same, two days in a row. Now, some people might say, that sounds wonderful, because I do the nine to five, I have the same little cubicle, I see the same people. I am so bored, but the paycheck is pretty good. Well, I have just the opposite. Every day is new. Most of the stuff that happens, I haven't done before in the same way I'm doing it today. I don't do this for money. You don't make a whole lot of money being a monk. But somehow you always seem to have enough. And, and there you go. So lifestyle, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, career, well, not so much. You know, and, and so lifestyle has been very good to me. It's kept me uh, lucid and flexible. Next question. What is your favorite meditating technique? And what does the Buddhist diet look like? Well, my favorite meditating technique now is called shikantasa, which is Japanese Zen for just sitting. But I started with mindfulness years and years ago, and I found that gave me a little bit of agitation because I started to see too clearly how screwed up the world was. Then I said to myself, well, I'm going to go after the bliss and happiness of samatha meditation. You know, the Buddha did both. He did mindfulness and he did samatha. And he had great insight and he had great compassion. And he didn't go nuts. So the idea for me was to find this samatha meditation and go deep, deep, deep into the breath. 
using the breath as the object of meditation, going deep into one-pointedness to concentrate for 20 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes on just the breath, allowing all the other thoughts to fall away and just come to that place of the present moment experience of my breath. So I took a lot of energy. I had a lot of great insights. It was very important that I did that. Uh, but now, you know, I, I'm sort of old, and I really like the idea of just sitting. Now, what that means to some people is this, that you take your posture on the ground. I sit in Burmese style, one leg in front of the other, parallel to each other. And, and I keep my back straight, and I have my hands on my lap. I keep my eyes half open, unfocused about three feet in front of me. I breathe through my nose and my diaphragm and keep my mouth closed, and then I simply come to the sensation of breath, and I wait. It's, I'm waiting for meditation to occur. Now, this is really an important distinction. At that point in my practice, I'm not meditating. What I've done is I've created conditions necessary for meditation to happen. Now, meditation oftentimes is just helicopters and sirens and, you know, uh, a knee that's a bit more sensitive than it should be or a back that wants to lay down. Meditation encompasses all those things and awareness of those things, but not having that necessarily be you feeling those things and evaluating them and giving them a sense of despair or achievement. It's just, this is what's going on right now. So I sit quietly for a half hour, 45 minutes, and just become aware of what's going on right now. And not attaching to them, not pushing them away, simply being aware and letting it go. So you could, in some ways, call shikantaza as a path of letting go. So I sit there and let go for a half hour, 45 minutes, and then I continue my day, and the siren starts, and it's so loud in this neighborhood, and I just let go, let go. Helicopters, I let go, let go. You know, cars driving too fast, let go, let go. So it really does translate into how you live your life. The meditation practice is not to go to la-la land and stay there. The meditation practice is to allow you to be more skillful in your everyday activities. So my primary um, focus is on the breath. I like it. It's always there. If I'm not breathing, I don't need to meditate. What's the Buddhist diet like? Well, it depends who the heck you talk to. You know, if you're talking to Mahayana monks, it's mostly vegetarian. You're talking to Theravada monks, it's a little bit of meat, chicken, fish, if you talk about the Buddha, the Buddha was a beggar, and beggars can't be choosers, so he ate what was offered, and sometimes he ate meat, and sometimes he ate vegetables, but he told his monks to accept them all. Don't, don't reject one or attach to one as being better than the other. Don't hide the good stuff under the bad stuff so you get more good stuff. Simply accept what's given and eat it with equanimity, no preferences. The food is not to make you feel good. It, the food is your medicine to keep you alive another day so you can practice Buddhism and ultimately achieve nirvana and end your suffering. And if you don't eat 
every day, you're not going to be strong enough to practice. And if you eat too much every day, you're going to want to take naps most of the day. So there's this moderation, this sort of middle path of eating, you know. And if you're Mahayana and eating at a Theravada temple, you eat what the Theravadans eat. And vice versa. We are in the practice of equanimity, balance of mind, no preferences. Very difficult when the chocolate cake comes out not to have a preference. But that's what this practice leads to. Balance. Do you have any regrets becoming a monk? Now, oftentimes, if I'm in a high school setting, uh, the, the kids will ask, you know, aren't you sad? You, you never got married. You never had any kids. Think of what you missed. Are you going to be lonely in old age? Look at all the people around you. They have many kids, and they're so happy. And, and I have to say that I have no regrets about being ordained. It's been something that has changed my life in such a positive way that I'm able to have deeper insights than I ever would have if I hadn't been ordained. I have a meaningful activity every day. Whatever it is, it turns out to be meaningful and leads me in the direction of nirvana and freedom. Uh, do I miss not having children? I am grateful I don't have children. And that's why the universe has given me cats. The universe said, Kusla, you got to do something for somebody else. You didn't want to have any children or a wife, but we're going to give you some cats to work with. And they're sort of like little children. You'll find out what you missed. And it's true. Uh, so, no, I have no regrets at all. I'm very glad that for some reason I was pointed in this direction and, and, and made the most of the opportunity. What is your favorite aspect of being a Zen Buddhist monk? Uh, the sirens are coming. My favorite aspect of being a Zen Buddhist monk is the way people talk about Zen. It's very, it's like poetry. I'm oftentimes thinking to myself, what the hell are they talking about? It makes no sense at all. But that's the idea. It's supposed to short-circuit your intellectual mind and allow your intuitive mind to awaken and open and see the possibilities when you don't limit them by what you know and what you do. So my favorite aspect of being a Zen Buddhist monk is just the, the paradox that always comes up in conversation or practice. You know, two and two make three, and you just go, no, no, no. But in Zen, two and two can make three. Next question. How much of your day do you spend meditating? Not much. Not much, or all day. If you look at mindfulness as being meditation, being mindful during the day is your meditation practice. If you think formal sitting practice is your meditation practice, then you're pretty much limited to maybe morning meditation, evening meditation, sometimes a half hour, sometimes 45 minutes. So it depends. It depends how much time I have. It depends what I need to do. It depends how agitated I am and need to sit back and just sort of relax into the present moment. 
And, and so there's no daily, this is what I do every day. Again, every day is the first day. Where is your favorite spot to meditate? Now, my favorite spot to meditate is right downstairs, the Zendo. I came here in 1979 to learn how to meditate. So I've been sitting in that little Zendo downstairs for a heck of a long time. And a lot of the samadhi, that, that rarefied mental state that happens when you meditate, is stuck to the ceilings and the walls. It's a wonderful environment. It's a great place. I have many fond memories. I also have a lot of terrible memories of the pain and suffering I went through to get past to have the fond memories. So my favorite place to meditate is IBMC downstairs in the Zendo. And after this COVID ends, this COVID-19 ends, it'll be open again. And I encourage all you guys to come by and sit with us. Next question. Where have you volunteered uh, where you feel you have the most impact? Now, that's, that's a great question because I, I volunteered for 20 years. I, I was in community service, and, and so I, I, I volunteered a lot. And I spent time in state prisons and juvenile hall and UCLA and, and uh, the Garden Grove Police Department, all being volunteers, uh, never getting paid for anything, just showing up and doing it. And I never felt that I impacted any of those places. I just didn't feel like I made much of a difference. But I kept showing up, you know, just because I committed to show up. And, and so as I look back, I, I don't know. I haven't got the slightest idea if, if, I, if I made a difference or didn't make a difference uh, I don't know, but I can say with some sense of uh, pride that I showed up. <laughs> Whatever level of, you know, making a difference that is. Uh, okay, this will be the last one because I see the time is, is getting uh, late now. What has been your experience with Buddhism in America? What, in your opinion, is the most difficult aspect of Buddhism? Well, Buddhism in America, you know, it hasn't been here very long, you know, 100, 150 years. It's, we're just like, compared to the rest of the world, we're just infants. And we're just starting to figure it out. And we're just starting to imprint it with American concepts and activities. And maybe one day we'll have Buddhist Christmas or Buddhist Easter or Buddhist Thanksgiving. But right now, most of the Buddhist holidays we celebrate and practice come from overseas. It's just, it's not... They're not American. Uh, do we have American Buddhism? We don't have American Buddhism. You know, I'm ordained in the Vietnamese Zen tradition. Um, uh, the other American monks and nuns I've talked to have always been ordained in either, you know, Tibetan or Mahayana or Theravada, but not ordained in American Buddhism because we don't have American Buddhism and we don't have American temples. That's what makes this temple sort of unique, is Dr. Thich Tianan said, I, I want this temple to be for Westerners, for Americans. Now, what does an American look like? Like everybody. And, and so I want you, know, you to speak English. I want you to not necessarily pick one form of Buddhism. He always invited a variety of teachers from a variety of uh, traditions and backgrounds to teach here when he was alive. 
So American Buddhism is just up in the air right now. Are we going to have more Theravada, more like the Catholics, or are we going to have more Mahayana, more like the Protestants? Will we have both, and will people choose? And then we have the Dharma teachers, and they are an important voice in American Buddhism as well. They have chosen not to be ordained in the traditional way, but they've chosen to study and practice and help others to study and practice too without the burden of ordination because most of them have relationships and jobs and a nice car and want to take vacations. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfect. That's, that's sort of the normal way. Uh, the monastics, on the other hand, have a bit more time and a bit more focus because we're not distracted by all the other things that the Dharma teachers are distracted. But I, I've heard some amazing Dharma teachers give Dharma talks that just blew my mind. And I've heard some amazing monks give Dharma teacher, uh, teach the Dharma and blow my mind. And I've also heard the, the other side of it, too. You know, so it really depends on the person. And, and all in all, what the Dharma teacher and the monks and the nuns are doing is they're interpreting Buddhism for you in their own unique and special way. Now, you, they can recite the Dharma to you, but if they have any kind of commentary at all, that's theirs. And that's how they understood it. So American Buddhism, because of that, is going to have a very unique flavor, and we need to support it as best we can, because it's an important aspect of, of uh, the Buddhist world now. And the end, what, uh, what's the most difficult aspect of Buddhism? I think the most difficult aspect of Buddhism is just to practice, not, not to give up, not to get bored, not to say it doesn't matter, but to simply sit down and say, okay, uh, I practice this time during the day, Every day, that's my commitment to Buddhism, and I'm going to do it. And so the most difficult thing I think about Buddhism is not understanding it, though that can be a challenge, but it, it's simply having that personal practice, whether you're at the Zendo or at home or on vacation, to always put a little time aside to practice Buddhism. <laughs>